Today we are in Luke chapter 9, verses 27 to verse 36. But let me read for us just beginning in verse 26. This is what God's word says. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, Jesus is speaking, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, as we have opened your word, we know that you have revealed yourself and your glory in it. And we ask that you would grant us eyes to see and behold the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. If you take a moment to stop and think about it, Christians are a really strange group of people. There's something truly bizarre about the Christian faith. Because we worship and bow down to this one Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago, who lived among many other Jewish men in his day, His name was Jesus, which you might be surprised was actually a very common name. The name Jesus is just Joshua, Yeshua. It's the exact same name. It's just spelled a little differently in the Greek. And before you think I'm a heretic saying there's more Jesuses than the Jesus of Nazareth, uh, if you look at the end of Paul's letter, in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 11, I believe it is, you'll notice that Paul refers to one of his companions and His companion's name is Jesus, who also goes by the name of Eustace. And that's probably why he went by that name instead, because he soon realized that he didn't want to bear that name. Uh, He felt unworthy to have the same name as his own Savior. But Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, it's just a short form of Joshua. It's basically saying Josh. Josh, the Jewish carpenter, that's who we worship. Because he was just a carpenter for most of his life. Why do we worship this Jewish carpenter named Josh from two millennia ago? 
There are many other Jewish carpenters besides him. Why do we not worship Yitzhak, the Jewish baker, who lived in the same town of Nazareth? Why not Lucius, the Roman CPA, who lived in Italy at the time? Why not Tommy, the American farmer who lives in Illinois right now working on a cornfield? What is this about this Joshua, the Jewish carpenter, that Christians have lived for and been willing to die for for the last 2,000 years and counting? It's because we believe and know with absolute certainty that this Jewish carpenter is the Lord God Almighty who has come down from heaven to earth. Although this Yeshua was just a man, a real man, who walked on earth among all the other Yeshuas of his day, because it was a very common name, although this Jesus was just like us, clothed with human flesh and bones, with the real human nature and soul just like us, We believe that underneath that clothing, as it were, was the very fullness of deity, the very essence of divine nature, the manifest presence of the Creator Himself. And if there's any passage of Scripture and any moment in history that makes this crystal clear, it is here on this mountain where Jesus was transfigured. Whereby, for a moment... His true glory and divine nature was allowed to shine forth past the veil of His humanity. And what was witnessed that day was the most dazzling beauty and majesty that ever graced this planet. And so we are reminded that we worship this man, Jesus. We adore Him because... He is God incarnate, the God-man. Now we need to begin by first asking why the transfiguration happened. Why did God the Father ordain this event to transpire? And why at this point in the gospel narrative? Well, notice how this account begins in verse 28. We find that Jesus took Peter, John, and James up a mountain where he would be transfigured. But what was he doing on that mountain? Why did Jesus go to that mountain in the first place? It was to pray. Now the important question for us is to ask, what was Jesus praying about? Now we're not told explicitly, but we can take a very good guess, given the pattern of Jesus praying and the context of him praying here. Because remember, Jesus always prayed. He was always communing with his Father. But throughout the Gospels, there are certain instances of Jesus' times of prayer that are recorded for us because they tend to be in moments of specific and intense deliberation and distress. For instance, we see later in the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, Jesus always prayed, but... That time of prayer in the garden was given special attention because there he was agonizing over his imminent suffering on the cross. 
And so we might ask, okay, well then, why does Luke take special care to record Jesus praying here before the transfiguration? What might be weighing so heavily on Jesus' heart? Well, notice the beginning of verse 28, it says that about eight days after these sayings. What sayings? Well, the sayings, the things that Jesus told his disciples, beginning all the way in verse 21, which we've seen in the last couple weeks, that upon Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, the Anointed One, Jesus then revealed, for the first time, he began speaking to them very plainly about the things that were to happen, namely, that he would suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and be raised, in verse 22. And even as he called everyone to deny themselves, pick up the cross, follow him even unto death, Jesus, to be sure, had his own fate in mind. He never calls us to do that which he has not gone before us to do himself. And with the dread of the cross weighing upon him as he was foretelling that to his disciples, Jesus went to the Father in prayer. And this tells us that whenever Jesus revealed to his disciples of his impending suffering, whenever he foretold how he would soon lay down his life for sinners and be subject to the horrors of the cross, Jesus never told those things just kind of casually, you know, nonchalantly. Oh, by the way, just FYI, this is going to happen, you know, some days from now. Save the date. Now, every time the destiny of Calvary was on his mind, there was in his heart the full weight of human distress and dread. Which is why if you fast forward to chapter 12 of Luke, you'll see in verse 50, in 50 that Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, that is to be plunged under the wrath of God. And he says, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. How tormented I am each and every day that I draw nearer to the cross. Jesus willingly put himself under the unspeakable horrors of divine wrath to save sinners like you and me. And perhaps what exacerbated his distress was also him perceiving how distressed his disciples were when they heard that Jesus would suffer. Now, I think sometimes we we assume that the disciples were kind of unfazed by what Jesus foretold, given that usually we don't see their explicit reaction recorded for us as to how they took the news. And maybe we think that it kind of went in one ear and out the other in total ignorance and apathy. Now, certainly, they were ignorant. They could not fully understand what Jesus was talking about. But it was not for a lack of trying. Every time Jesus told them that he would suffer and die, they heard him loud and clear. But they couldn't comprehend how and why this was necessary, partly because they didn't want to comprehend it. They didn't want him to suffer that fate. And we know that Jesus' words took a toll on them because in this very same context, Matthew and Mark records for us that when Jesus foretold his death plainly for the first time, Peter responded. Peter chimed up by saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. He was saying, Lord, never over my dead body. How dare anyone lay a finger on you, Lord? No one shall hurt you because you are my beloved master and Lord. 
And this is how much Peter loved Jesus. And he couldn't wrap his mind around the fact that the one whom he loved, the one whom he confessed to be the Christ, would have to undergo such a horrible fate. You see, the disciples were distressed once Jesus began telling them plainly of his impending suffering. And Jesus loved them so much that seeing them in distress, it compounded his own distress. In fact, this is why Matthew and Mark tells us that when Peter said those words, Jesus immediately responded by saying, Get behind me, Satan. Why did Jesus say that? Not because Peter was the devil incarnate and Jesus hated him. Quite the opposite. It's because Jesus loved Peter so intensely with such a human affection. Peter was his best friend on earth. And so hearing his dearest friend beg him to not go to the cross, it struck Jesus' heart so forcefully that in that moment he was tempted like none other to forsake the path of the cross. Hence he had to say, get behind me, Satan, the tempter. And so we find Jesus up on this mountain in deep prayer because of the condition that he and his disciples were in under tremendous distress and a troubled heart. Which tells us that if we ever find ourselves disconcerted and troubled, we ought to go to our Father in prayer, even as our Lord Jesus himself did in his own distress. And this suggests to us that the thing that Jesus was praying about was for the Father to strengthen him in the face of his temptation and the dread before the looming cross. For the Father to confirm that though there lies ahead this horrendous suffering, that the Father would not ultimately abandon him forever. But that following Jesus' humiliation of suffering, even unto death, would be his exaltation and his vindication. That he would be glorified with the glory that he already had and enjoyed with the Father for all eternity before the world existed, as John 17 verse 5 tells us. Now what a reminder of Jesus' true humanity, that our Lord needed a real human reassurance from the Father. And indeed, the Father heard the agonizing prayer of His Son, And what transpired on this mountain was the answer to that prayer. This is why it says in verse 29 that as Jesus was praying, he was transfigured. You see, the Father answered by allowing the true eternal glory of the Son to shine through the veil of His humanity for a moment as a confirmation both to the Son and to His disciples that despite Jesus' humiliation of suffering and death, that He is truly the eternal Son of God, the radiance of divine glory, and that the suffering that He would suffer would only be a temporary humiliation after which He would be raised and exalted back to His rightful place of His eternal glorious throne to reign over His kingdom forever. 
And this is why in the previous passage, Jesus finished his words, his sayings with this in verse 26. For whoever, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here, so he's speaking to his 12 disciples, but there are some of you who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, what was Jesus referring to in verse 27? What is this kingdom of God that some of the disciples will see before they die? Now, some interpreters believe that Jesus is primarily referring to his resurrection. Because that's when he commenced his reign as the risen king. Or others say it's Pentecost. Because that's when the, the Spirit of God was poured out on all, which commenced the spread of his kingdom to all nations and tribes and tongues. Others say that it was the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. Because Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome as an act of divine judgment, which represents Jesus' vindication and glorification through the judgment of the Jews who rejected him. Or some say all of the above or any mixture of the above. Now, all of these events, the resurrection, Pentecost, the destruction of Jerusalem, they do capture an aspect of God's kingdom being inaugurated on earth. And so it's not that these options have to be pitted against each other, but with all that said, I'm convinced that the singular event that Jesus was most directly referring to of them seeing the kingdom was the transfiguration. Because, first of all, Jesus' statement is immediately followed by the transfiguration. Not only here in Luke, but also in Matthew and Mark. Jesus says, there's some standing here, we'll see the kingdom of God. And then immediately, now after a week or so, this happened. And verse 28 right away emphasizes that Jesus took only some of them standing there. There were the 12 disciples that he was speaking to, but he took only Peter, John, and James to witness the transfiguration. Now, why those three? Well, we're not told explicitly, but the usual pattern is that Jesus reserved some of the most powerful displays of his glory to just those three. For example, back in chapter 8, when uh, Jesus went to go raise the daughter of Jairus uh, from the dead, he took with him only Peter, James, and John. They were the inner circle within the circle of the 12 disciples. But secondly, notice how Jesus emphasized that they will see the kingdom of God. And then notice how Luke emphasizes in verse 32 that Peter and those who were with them, when they woke up, they saw his glory. And again in verse 36, that they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Usually when a biblical writer is emphatic to repeat the same word, even to do it twice, it's because he's making a direct connection. That this is what Jesus was probably referring to. And in fact, Peter himself, later in his second letter, he refers to the transfiguration and says in chapter 1, verse 16 of 2 Peter, that regarding the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty as we were on that holy mountain and heard that voice from heaven. And so, 
It seems to me that all the signs in the text point to the transfiguration as what Jesus was primarily referring to. Why? Because the transfiguration was a visible sight of what the full consummation of God's kingdom would look like. Now, of course, the consummation of God's kingdom is still yet future. We're still waiting for that day when Jesus will return in his heavenly glory with the clouds of heaven and consummate his kingdom rule on earth visibly and manifestly. But here on this day was the glory of his kingdom, which will one day be fully revealed at his return. But here, for a moment of time, it was previewed, if you will. I just made up a word. And what did they see when God the Father gave a sneak peek into the full glory and power of his kingdom? Verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Immediately we are reminded that the kingdom of God is not ultimately about a place or a province, but it is concentrated on a person, Christ himself. Heaven is not just a place, but heaven is chiefly about a person and being in his presence forever. Heaven without Christ is hell. Do you understand? Christ is what makes heaven so heavenly. Because he himself is the beauty and glory and majesty of God that satisfies our souls. And Jesus' transfiguration shows us this. It says that the appearance of his face was altered or transfigured, which is why we call it the transfiguration. Now, it doesn't mean that in this moment he became somebody else and that he changed substance. But it means that his true self was shown in this moment of time. You see, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 tells us that Jesus... Though being God himself, though he was God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, and he emptied himself in his incarnation as he came to earth. Which means that before the Son of God entered the world, he was with the Father throughout all eternity and the full radiance of his holiness and glory. But when he entered the world, he emptied himself and came in the likeness of men. Now, it's very important to understand that Jesus did not empty himself of his glory. As though he threw his divine essence into the trash bin when he came to earth. That's not possible. God cannot empty himself of deity. That, that, that's self-contradictory. That would mean that God would stop being God. It doesn't work. That's, that's heretical. If Jesus emptied himself of his divinity, then he would be only a man, just a man like you and me. But we know him to be truly God and truly man, both full divine nature and full human nature in that one person. And so if that's the case, how could Paul say in Philippians 2 that Jesus emptied himself? What did he empty himself of? Well, he explains, if you keep reading that verse, that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. You see, it's not that the eternal Son of God 
took off his divine nature, but that he emptied himself, he humbled himself by taking on human nature. It was subtraction by addition, if you will. He covered up his glory with human nature. And in so doing, he emptied, he gave up his right and prerogative to freely exercise his divine attributes during this humiliation. He gave up his free, unrestricted, unrestrained exercise of being God and enjoying the rights and privileges of being a divine being, the divine being, God himself. And instead, he subjected himself to the real limitations of finite humanity, putting himself under total dependence on the will of his Father. And so whenever Jesus performed miracles, it was only because in those moments, in every instance of it, the God the Father ordained it, and the Spirit of God empowered it. And so you see, what the Son of God did in His incarnation is that He covered up His glory through the vesture of true humanity. In entering this world, the Lord God Almighty put on the veil of human nature so that He might dwell among men as a man. Hence the words of that Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. In that second stanza it says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. You know the Christmas hymns, they're catchy and popular, but they got some of the richest theology in the words. This is what God has come to do, to come down to us, to be man, to dwell with man. But here on this mountain, it was as though the corner of that veil was lifted and the human nature was peeled back for a brief moment. And what shone through was the true glory of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And the appearance of His face was visibly altered because the veil was lifted. And Matthew tells us that His face shone like the sun. And doesn't this remind you of a similar incident, but of a lesser degree, in the Old Testament? You remember in Exodus chapter 34... After Moses spent 40 days on Mount Sinai talking with God, intimately communing with Him, he even asked God to show him the glory of God. Please show me your glory, Moses said. And God said, well, you can't can't see my full glory because you'll die. But here's what I'll do. I'll let you see my back. So you stand here, I'll cover your eyes, and I'll walk past you and you can see my back. Which was not literally saying that Moses saw God's backbone and vertebrae in the back of his t-shirt but that Moses was only allowed to see the trailing glimmers of his glory. Because that's all he could handle. But after those 40 days of intense fellowship with God in his presence, it says that Moses came down. And what happened? The people of Israel noticed, hey, Moses back. Whoa, what's up with his face? Because the skin of his face was shining. Why? 
Because he had been in the presence of heavenly glory for such an extended period of time that his own face began to reflect the glory that he beheld so intimately for 40 days. And so Moses came down with his face glowing and the people of Israel were afraid to be put a veil over his face. But what do we see here? Moses' face in Exodus 34 was a reflection of divine glory. But here, Jesus' face showed like the sun because it was the source of divine glory. On this mountain, at the transfiguration, was the very face that Moses had beheld on that mountain of Sinai. And it says that Jesus' clothing became dazzling white. Literally, it says that it was like flashes of lightning. It's not because Jesus got this fabulous, flamboyant wardrobe upgrade, but rather, he was wearing his ordinary clothes, but that the person of Christ, his very body was so radiant that heavenly brilliance was shining through his ordinary garments of cloth. This is not the first time such descriptions have been shown and recorded in Scripture. This is the vision that Ezekiel saw in chapter 1 of his prophecy. As he saw someone sitting on the throne with a human appearance, but glowing like gleaming metal and surrounded by indescribable brightness. This is the vision that Daniel saw in chapter 7 of his prophecy of the Ancient of Days taking his seat on the throne and his clothing was blindingly white. And this is the vision that John would later see in Revelation chapter 1 verse 16. One like a son of man whose face was like the sun shining at full strength. This is who Jesus is. And what an incredible thought that such a glorious one humbled himself to the lowest of the low to redeem sinners like us. And yet, that love, that grace, that self-denying, self-giving mercy is the very glory of God revealed in full. In other words, it's not just that His appearance, His visuals are beautiful, but that God Himself is beautiful. His character, His heart, His works, His attributes. Notice what happens next in verse 30. Moses and Elijah appear in glory and begin talking with Jesus. Now let's ask, why Moses and Elijah? Why those two? Why not Abraham and David? Why not Noah and Hezekiah? Was because Moses represents the law, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, I almost forgot. And Elijah represents the prophets, the law and the prophets there with Jesus. Why is this important? Because the law and the prophets is another way of referring to the whole Old Testament. It was a shorthand way of referencing the Old Testament. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. He was saying, I have come to fulfill the entire Old Testament. And so the representative figures of the law and the prophets appear on this mountain to speak to the transfigured Jesus because 
He is the very embodiment and fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament. All of God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1. And this is even more evident when we look at what they were talking about with Jesus. What was the conversation about? Verse 31, they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, in your Bibles, in your translations, you may have a footnote there after the word departure. And if you look down, I do at least in mine, in my ESV, it says in the footnote that in the Greek, literally, it is the word exodus. And not only that, the word accomplish, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, it could also be translated, and I think in my opinion, better translated to the word fulfill. Moses and Elijah appeared to talk to Jesus about the exodus which he was about to fulfill at Jerusalem. Because as we've mentioned before in previous weeks, the Old Testament exodus out of Egypt was a picture of the ultimate exodus that we need. Being rescued out of slavery to sin, to be led through the wilderness of this fallen world, into the promised land of God's presence from which we were all cut off because of our sin. And this is what Jesus would fulfill in Jerusalem because there He would lay down His own life on the cross as the Passover lamb and the ultimate exodus. And His blood would be spilled as the Passover lamb so that all who cover the doorposts of their hearts with His blood would be spared from the judgment that they deserve and have it pass over them. And that they will be His people and that He will be their God. Because the judgment that they deserved was unleashed on the sacrificial Lamb of God on the altar of the cross. This is the Gospel pictorialized in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New through the person and work of Christ. And the good news is that because of what Christ has done, there is for sinners the blessing of being reconciled to God, returning from the exile out of the garden back to His presence. The presence of God. That's what we are all yearning for. That's what every human soul longs for. And that's what every man and woman and child needs, to be with God. And that's actually what's being hinted at by this next sequence of events. Verse 32, Peter, James, and John were heavy with sleep because I guess they had too much chicken shawarma for dinner. And when they finally woke up, they witnessed this glory of Jesus and saw Moses and Elijah, and they were speechless. And as Moses and Elijah were departing from the scene, Peter, who never knows when to keep his mouth shut, he said in verse 33, Master, it's good for us that we're here. This is great. I love this. We're having a great time. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. Not knowing what he said. That is Peter for you. He says things where he has no idea what he's talking about. Now, we could spend all the time in the world talking about what an impulsive individual Peter was, who was always putting his foot in his mouth, and indeed, that is true of him. But there's actually a greater theological point that's being suggested here. Because Peter says, let's make some tents, reminiscent of the Feast of Booths, 
the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the Feast of Tents. It's all the same thing, where God instructed Israel to observe this by living in tents as a reminder of His presence among them through the tabernacle, which was the holy tent where God dwelt with them. And all the blessings and the provision and the grace that were found in God dwelling with them as His people. Again, that's what a tabernacle is. That's why it's also called in the Old Testament the tent of meeting. That in the Old Testament, the glory of God manifestly and physically entered the most holy place of that tent whereby God dwelt among His people. And you remember how it was all inaugurated. In Exodus chapter 40, after building and constructing the tabernacle, it was completed and erected for the first time in the very final passage of the book of Exodus. And it says that when it was installed, inaugurated, and erected, it says that the cloud of the glory of the Lord settled and overshadowed the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord entered and filled the tabernacle. But you see what's happening here in verse 34. As Peter was saying these things about pitching a tent because he wanted this sublime experience to continue forever, all of a sudden a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The son of God in human flesh. He is the ultimate tabernacle, the ultimate temple, because rather than the glory of the Almighty filling a room in a tent or in a temple building, here is the glory of God having filled the most holy place of the very person of the, Je- of the Lord Jesus. There is no greater temple than Emmanuel himself, God with us, because Jesus Christ as Emmanuel, he is the whole point of what the temple was pointing to. And that's why John, reminiscing this day, would later write in his gospel in the first chapter, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He literally says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, tented among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the cloud overshadowed them all, As God the Father made it crystal clear, this one, my anointed one, he is my son. He is my own image, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of divine nature. And this statement by God that that he speaks uh, out of the voice in the cloud, it actually has so many Old Testament texts intertwined together. When he says, this is my son, it's a reference to Psalm 2, that the anointed son of God, the messianic son, would be the one to reign over the whole earth. But when he says, my chosen one, this is coming from Isaiah 42, speaking of the Messiah as a suffering servant of the Lord, where God says through Isaiah, behold my son whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And that begins in Isaiah 42 and goes all the way, hitting the climax in Isaiah 53, where it says that he was pierced for our transgression and crushed for our iniquities. And Deuteronomy chapter 18, listen to him. And God would one day raise a prophet like Moses in whose mouth would be the very word of God. To him you shall listen. Now we could spend days 
unpacking the richness of the theology here. But the simple point is this, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. All of God's promises realized in Him. Christ is the ultimate word, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That Christ is the one who accomplishes the ultimate exodus, rescuing sinners from their bondage to sin. Christ is the ultimate temple, the very presence of God with us as man. And Christ is the ultimate anointed one, the Messiah, whose arrival the Old Testament was announcing over and over again in every page of Scripture. It is all about Christ. Life is about Christ. History is about Christ. The universe exists for Christ, through whom the glory of God is revealed and spreads to every crevice of His cosmos. And this is why Luke makes this point, that after the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Because as amazing as Moses and Elijah's appearance was, they faded into the peripheral in light of the focal point of Christ. It's all about Christ alone. It's as though, after all of this, the full spotlight was on Jesus. And after this incident, Peter, James, and John were overwhelmed with awe that they kept silent about what they had seen because it was so unspeakable in wonder what they witnessed. But they did not keep silent forever. Luke says that they told no one in those days anything of what they had seen during the days of Jesus' ministry on earth. But to be sure, after those days, after Jesus ascended on high, they told everyone everything they had seen. Which is why it has been recorded inscripturated and passed down to us that we might believe their eyewitness testimony and that we too might bow down to the glory of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Church, this is the one whom we worship, whom we serve, and whom we love. This Jewish man, this carpenter, from 2,000 years ago is the infinite excellency of divine beauty because he is our creator who came to us in the likeness of us, his creatures, to save us from our sin by laying down his own life and suffering the death that we deserve to bring us back to himself. This is why we gather as a church to praise his glorious name, the precious name of Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth. Let me close with this thought that remember that the transfiguration happened not only to strengthen the Lord in His humanity, but it was also to encourage and strengthen the faith of His disciples. Because they would have to undergo something that they didn't fully understand at the time of seeing their beloved Lord and Master suffer this horrific torture and death and be taken away from them for a few days. And so before that all went down, they were shown a glimpse of His glorious exaltation that they might not lose hope permanently. In the same way, you may go through life, Christian, 
with all of its ups and downs, trials and tribulations, things happening to you, things that you've gone through and will go through, and you won't fully understand at this present time why. But take heart, because you are reminded here and all throughout Scripture of the permanent future that awaits you. And any suffering, any trial and tribulation is but a brief moment. But the future that awaits you is in the glory of Jesus when he returns to come for his own. And let Moses and Elijah's little cameo here be proof to you that all who belong to God are safe forever. When they made their appearance here on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses had been dead for 1,500 years. Elijah was MIA for 900 years. But look here, and on this mountain, they appear with Christ, better than they ever were on earth, safe and secure in His presence, in their glorified condition. This is our future in Christ. And so take heart, and be strengthened by the words of one of the eyewitnesses there that day on the mountain. As the Apostle John writes in his first letter, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for revealing the fullness of your glory to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we have absolute confidence because your apostles were eyewitnesses to his majesty and glory, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. So that even 2,000 years later, sinners like us today might have hope of salvation in His name. We thank You that He gives to us Himself so freely that not only did He lay down His life for us on the cross, but even now, as we're prepared to take the Lord's Supper, that even now through these visible signs and seals of the Gospel, He confirms to us His promises of the assurance of His finished work on the cross, and the certainty of the glory that awaits us at His return. And so, Lord, we ask that You would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use it to minister to our soul by Your Spirit through this visible truth that is communicated to us by these physical and tangible elements. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.